0: This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 12, Episode 8, The Vanishing, in conversation with war reporter and author, Janine Giovanni. In her ninth book, The Vanishing, which chronicles faith, loss, and the Twilight of Christianity in the Land of the Prophets, Janine recounts the plight of dwindling Christian communities in Iraq, Syria, Gaza, and Egypt, which date from the time of Jesus Christ. She's a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs and the former Edward R. Murrow Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. She's written and reported from the Balkans, Africa, and the Middle East. A witness to history, Janine saw the siege of Sarajevo, the fall of Grozny, the genocides of Srebrenica and Rwanda during her 35-year career as a foreign correspondent, as well as more than a dozen other active conflicts throughout the world. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times and the Washington Post. Janine joins us today from her office in New York. Good morning, Janine, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Janine, let's get right to it. What inspired you to write about these vulnerable Christian communities? On the one hand, they've survived centuries of sectarian persecution, yet here we are in the 21st century, and they're still living in the lands of their ancestors. Are there unique circumstances at play today in 2022 that augur ill for their continued existence. And of course, you've lived and worked in Iraq, Syria, Gaza, and Egypt. So you bring a unique firsthand experience and perspective to the story.
1: Absolutely. So I began to write The Vanishing technically five years ago, but really I began researching it 30 years ago when I began working in the Middle East. And one thing that always fascinated me was that this region, in, in the times of Jesus Christ, had been so rich in history and so rich in, in so many prophets and zealots and evangelicals who roamed the, the land. But the people who are living now, let's say, let's take northern Iraq, are the direct descendants of, of those prophets. I began working in Iraq at the time of Saddam Hussein. So let's say like the late 90s early 2000 and that was really when I first became aware of the Christian communities and they fascinated me. First of all because they're ancient ancient people, the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, Greek Orthodox. There there's many different sects, Eastern Eastern Christians. But also their absolute and profound resilience. And how they had remained in in their ancestral land for for 2,000 years, despite so many armies that tried to destroy them, and, and probably most recently, the Islamic State. So many people ask me, why did you choose these four communities? Why not Lebanon, where there's a large number of Christians? Why not Bahrain or the Gulf, where Christians equally face persecution? And there's a reason for it. These four countries, I believe, are where Christians in the Middle East are the most vulnerable and the most in danger of being eradicated. In Gaza, there's only 800 Christians left. Mm-hmm. And at, at the time of the fourth century, there were, Gaza was completely Christian. And they are under a, living under a punishing, punishing siege imposed by Israel and Egypt since 2007. And I'll come back to Gaza. In Egypt, the Christian cops are discriminated, persecuted, as are the Syrian Christians who, of course, have been living with the the horrors of a war that is now about to enter its 12th year. So all of them are united by a common theme. And I wrote The Vanishing basically, let's just say, under the umbrella that these people are in danger of being wiped off the face of the earth. In Northern Iraq, political
0: scientists
1: basically tell me that it will be a hundred years before Christians in that part of the world will no longer be there. Mm. But I was on a call a couple of weeks ago with uh, the Archbishop of canterbury in, in England team, and a bishop from Lebanon interrupted me and said no, I mean that 's extremely optimistic it 's more like forty years." Mm. So there's a multitude of things facing all these people, but at the top is radicalism. So the Islamic State rolled through Iraq and Syria in 2014, and I was in Baghdad at that time. Their targets were minorities, so Yazidi people who are not Christians but are minorities, Christians, and, and even even Muslims who were not pious, who didn't subscribe to their extreme worship of of islam so the christians were rounded up first of all uh, when they heard isis was coming they got in their cars they took whatever they could some of them left in the middle of the night and they began an exodus to safer parts of nineveh which is the area or wherever they could go some ended up as far as kurdistan in the north they were burned out of their houses their churches were destroyed some of the women were taken away Uh, Some people were killed, many people were killed in the the fighting that ensued. So in the two years that the Islamic State reigned their their reign of absolute terror, it was basically a complete subjugation of of Christians in that region. Hmm. ISIS was toppled in 2016, but there are still a multitude of pressing and urgent problems. There is climate change. There is migration because there's no jobs, there's no incentive for young people to stay. Kind of daily threats they feel from the geopolitics of the region. For instance, in northern Iraq, they're very worried about Iranian-backed militias or Turkish airstrikes. In Syria, of course, they feel the, the terrible consequences of the war. In Gaza, the Christians are suffering the same as the two million Muslims that are living basically in an open-air prison. Conditions in Gaza are absolutely appalling. It's a humanitarian disaster of the most profound degree. That's kind of like basically skimming the surface Mm -hmm. of what I did in the book.
0: In your book, you refer to the dictators, namely Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Hafez Assad, the father, and of course his son, has taken over from him. And then of course President Mubarak in Egypt. Now all three of those dictators in according to your book had included Christian communities in their respective countries as part of their part of their coalition. In other words, they were somewhat protected by those dictatorial regimes. So here's my question to you, Janine. As a result of our intervention in Iraq, and as a result of the war in Syria, did we, at least in Iraq, the United States, have we made the plight of the Christian community in Iraq worse than it would have been? In other words, I'm not arguing to say that Saddam Hussein should have been left in power. But by the same token, from the point of view of the Christian community, the Christians seem to be protected by him. Could you talk about that, that dilemma?
1: It's a very strange dilemma i mean christian communities traditionally were protected minorities were protected by these brutal dictators on the other hand so let's say saddam hussein protected christians but he hated the kurds and of course launched a genocidal attacks on them he wanted to wipe them out completely so it was not official deals i mean there was no policy put in place but it's it was very much understood that saddam would protect christians that Bashar al-Assad now protects the Christian community in Syria, and that what the people really feared was what would come after them. Mm-hmm. So Syria, for instance, there was, there was grave fear that if Bashar was toppled, then what would come next? Would it be some kind of radical form of Islam? Would it be al-Nusra? Would it be al-Qaeda? And I think this was one of the reasons why they more or less hid under his mantle mubarak it was it was a very similar thing there's you know there's grave fears of the way that the pendulum swings that you will have like radical islam and and what does this mean for the minorities how will they be tolerated and will they be able to live their lives the way that they had always lived them so there's a very interesting thing and again because there's no sort of formal policy on this. When you talk to people about it, like, let's say in Syria, when I would talk to Christian communities, and I would try to get them to talk about Assad, especially, you know, Assad has committed some of the most horrific atrocities, just absolute horrible conditions in his prisons, torture, rape, chemical Mm. gassing of his own people. And yet, they would say to me, you know, we love Bashar, we love him. Mm. Now, whether or not even though I spend a lot of time with people, I don't just swoop in and swoop out. I, I you know spend years doing this. People are afraid. It's very, very difficult to penetrate these very closed communities who are so vulnerable. They're vulnerable, they're exposed, they're minorities. they fear for their very existence. Gaza as well was quite a difficult, a difficult place to penetrate. Gaza is very difficult to work in anyway. But I think on top of it, the, the Christians fear, of course, everyone fears the Israeli bombing, which is horrific, and the Israeli severe punitive measures, collective punishment on the entire population, which is absolutely cruel, unjust, inhumane. But there's a few Hamas who, who control the Gaza Strip. You know, the lives of these people are very precarious. And especially for young people, who let's say Gaza, you know, some of the most intelligent, entrepreneurial, brilliant young people. And yet they can't leave Gaza because the Israelis won't let them. They're, you know, they're completely hemmed in. So I think the big question for these Christian communities is what is their future if they do remain in these lands? And how how do we keep them there? The opportunities in America or Canada are, are very seductive for them. and yet they know if they leave, the land of their four, of their, their forefathers is, is in danger of disappearing forever.
0: Practically speaking, how would we keep a community? How would we protect a community such as those communities in situ being so far away? I mean, one of the points in your book, you talk about the otherness, the feeling of otherness, that these communities feel, even though their forebears have been there for hundreds, thousands of years, yet within the context of their own country, they feel a sense of otherness, that they're not they're they're not fully participating in the day-to-day civic life, social life, cultural life of the country of Iraq, of Syria, of Gaza, of Egypt. So that's my first question. And then then the second part to the question is this. Of course, over the last 20 years there's been mass migration of those Christian communities out of Iraq and Syria in particular here to the United States, to Western Europe, to Canada. Are those emigre diaspora communities of these ancient Christians from the Middle East that are now settled in Western Europe and Canada, the United States. Are they what kind of help, what kind of assistance do they give to their relatives, to their brethren in those in, in their home countries? So that, that's a two-part question for you.
1: The first part, what could we do? I think the first and foremost is awareness, right? So I hope everyone reads my book. It's called The Vanishing, because that's the first step. If you understand who they are, what they are, what they're up against, if you're aware of them. I think there are so many Christian communities throughout the U.S. that have no idea that there are even Middle Eastern Christians. Mm -hmm. I think people don't even realize, and I know this because people have said this to me, that Jesus Christ was an Arab and a Jew. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, he was a brown person. He wasn't wasn't the white angelic image that we see in churches. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the birthplace of Christianity is in the Middle East, first and foremost. So they're there. When the Pope went to Northern Iraq last year. It was an extraordinary moment because what he was doing was was twofold. He was saying, first of all, we are here. I am here. We know you are here. I've got your back. And second, it was bringing a worldwide focus on them and their plight. So this is the first This is the most crucial thing, you know, recognizing that they exist. Mm -hmm. Second, From a governmental level, there's absolutely policies that can be put in place to protect these people, making sure that there is a small remaining military force and protecting them against, again, Turkish airstrikes, Iranian-backed militias. I mean, this is the real dilemma. When President Trump launched the Muslim ban in 2016, Mm -hmm. it did not include Christians. So Muslims from Arab countries or, you know, basically any Muslim could not come to the US. But Christians could. I think on one hand, like encouraging the migration is basically emptying their country. On the other hand, if let's say young people need to come here to train as doctors, as lawyers, as dentists, we have to make it easy for them to get educated here, but then to go back to their countries. Because I think what we really don't want is a brain drain. And that's what I see happening in Gaza. And it's heartbreaking. Because, you know, Gaza needs those brilliant young people to stay there. But they're just so right. I wrote about this in this month's Vanity Fair about the youth of Gaza. Opportunities are so limited and their hopes are so crushed. So I think it's absolutely imperative that we support them whether it is by setting up small businesses entrepreneurial enterprises helping them with educational schemes i mean i have a dream that we should open outsourcing in gaza and the reason for this Mm -hmm. is that they the gazans are wonderful linguists Mm -hmm. they speak you know perfect english as well as several other european languages so when i call my bank and i get someone who doesn't speak English in another country, it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I always think like, why don't we use Gaza? Gaza would be a perfect place for outsourcing. And of course, there's a myriad of political reasons why we don't, but I think I think that we should begin to think out of the box for ways that we could support these people.
0: Mm-hmm. To the extent that so many of the, the Syrians, the educated classes of Syrians, the engineers, the doctors, the dentists, fled Syria, were welcomed, I believe, up to a million of them were welcomed in in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, also France and and beyond. How has that resettlement played out in those European countries? Because it's been a it's been a good five, six, seven years now. So have they have they assimilated to living in Germany? Have they learned the language? Are they able? Have they been able to use their skills? in Germany very, and France? Very,
1: difficult. very, very difficult. I worked for the UN Refugee Agency during this at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis. First and foremost, I've never met a refugee in my 30-plus years of working in the Balkans, Africa, the Middle East, who wanted to leave their country. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between economic migrants who are going places for better opportunities. I mean, my grandfather was an economic migrant who mm-hmm. came from Italy to the United States it's a different thing when you are forced out of your country because of war, because of poverty, well, economic conditions that are unbearable, or climate change, or you're escaping something, you know, that you cannot live in your country and be safe anymore. So for many of these people, you know, some of them highly educated, they got to places like Germany, and they're in terrible conditions. I mean, look, it's better conditions than being in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And the Germans have done a remarkable job, I think, of welcoming these communities. The French, less so, and the Brits, ter- not well at all. And neither have, I think, uh, the U.S., but we're further away. I think that the life of a refugee is one of, of, of sadness and sorrow. You've left behind your home, your roots, your, your memories, everything that you are and you go to a new place and and not only do you have to learn a new language and a new job but you have to, you lose all status. I I know many um, Afghan-Americans who came here after 1979 uh, after the Soviet invasion and what they told me the most difficult thing wasn't getting jobs or even getting money out some of them had money, it's just a matter of losing all status Mm -hmm. and starting over again so I mean this is it's it's constantly an issue for immigrant communities to assimilate. I think it takes several generations. France, of course, is notorious for having uh, the cities, inside cities being white and the external, the peripheries where the, the Arabs, the Africans, immigrants live. And so that, that does not really make for a a community that is assimilated. It's a very difficult thing to achieve.
0: Throughout your book, The Vanishing, there's a, a strong sense of your own personal faith that faith of course must have uh, must have helped you in researching the book and getting close to many of the people that you interviewed in in Iraq and in Syria and Gaza and Egypt can you speak to that your own personal faith journey in the context of this this book the vanishing
1: when i sat down to actually it took me about 5 years to do the field work in in the four countries. And I kept going back and forth and interviewing people, doing research. And and then when I actually, you know, the process of writing a book, when you sit down with your notebooks at your desk and have to do the really tough part, which is writing. <laughs> right. um, as I started doing that, COVID hit. I had taken in March, 2020, I'd brought my son who is French uh, from the US to, to to see his father for spring break. And literally the day after we got there, the, the uh, President Macron declared that the you know the borders were closed. The, the, basically, nous sommes en guerre. We are at war. Mm-hmm. Pandemic truly began. And it was terrifying because if you remember those early days, we didn't know. It was way before vaccines. We didn't know. Couldn't get masks. I had to hand make my own mask. We uh, Supermarkets ran out of uh, hand sanitizers, Mm -hmm. food, everything. So it was a time of great fear. And I basically, I went down to a very small remote village in southeastern France in the Alps where my ex-husband's family have lived for 400 years. And that's where I settled for about six months. And I started to write my book. And I was there with um, cousins who are very, very devout Roman Catholics. I was raised Roman Catholic and Mm -hmm. I... I do believe in God. I, I have deep faith, but they're true uh, followers of, of the faith and um, go to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And and it was very inspiring to be with them a very comforting. I just, you know, I realized how much my own faith meant to me, especially in times of great darkness and the pandemic was and has been. A time of tremendous darkness. I think for all of us.
0: Let's come back to the the brain. You you referred to the brain drain because obviously there's a dilemma here. You have particularly the Christian communities in Iraq and Syria better educated. I'm told than the the Sunni population better educated, perhaps with skills, engineers, doctors, dentists, etc. As they leave the country and with good reason because perhaps they're being persecuted or fear for their lives. As they leave the country, they're taking those skills with them. And because the Christians seem to have a higher level of education and educational attainment and and career advancement, they're, they're leaving, they must be leaving large gaps in the, uh, in the economy and in the professions are though. How is Iraq and Syria plugging those gaps are they are they going out of their way to recognize that these ancient Christian communities leaving aside the the fact that leaving the religion aside for one moment that these people have very real skills that are not readily and easily replaced by the remaining local populations is the situation in Iraq and Syria just too chaotic for their local governments to even make those kind of assumptions and try to develop those sort of policies to encourage those well-educated and uh, technically gifted Christians to remain. Are there any policies on the ground to retain that population?
1: Basically, there's a myriad of reasons why they can't stay or why they feel they should leave, and I think the biggest one is the call of, of greater opportunity. You know, people often think They're going to go to Canada or the US or Sweden and they're going to find land of, you know, milk and honey. And they they're living under conditions which are not easy and very different. Again, like Gaza is literally hell on earth. The electricity cuts are several times a day. There is no clean water. Mm. Uh, Ten years ago, the UN did a report saying by 2021, Gaza would be unlivable. Well, it's now 2022. The 11-day Israeli bombardment was, was cruel and killed 267 people, 67 of them children, and they never know. I mean, the thing is, you're in Gaza, you never know when Israel is going to strike. Mm-hmm. More worse is that you can't leave. The claustrophobia of having 2 million people in a 7-mile by 14-mile strip of land is is desperate so gaza has those conditions right iraq has 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 a, a, other ones whereas that i think the the Koldians, the assyrians feel that they're in a place where there is rising radicalism and that they're they're not safe iraq of course has a very strong iranian influence right mm-hmm. now 65% shia which kind of changes but there is a very strong iranian influence inside the country so A lot of the Christians fear that. They have good, but sometimes wary relations with the Kurds who are their neighbors. Of course, the Kurds did all the heavy lifting in the fighting against ISIS. So Iraq is complicated and it's a a country in conflict, but it's also a post-conflict country because the American invasion caused utter havoc on every level in the country. Syria is still at war for all practical purposes. Let's say Bashar al-Assad has won. You know, I truly believe he has. But what has he won? His country is destroyed. Millions of people have fled. It's it's more the the, the notion that Syria could be united again after such a brutal war is, is very unrealistic. Egypt, the Christians there have a very different, well, a different situation, mm-hmm. it, depending on their socioeconomic conditions, because you could, you know, you could be a Cairo Christian and have been educated at the French lycée and have a good job and come from family money. You could live in Minya, where I spent a bit of time, and you could really experience true discrimination Mm -hmm. and persecution. And the Egyptian constitution uniquely has passages which say Christians cannot hold senior-level jobs in government or in the military, and Mm -hmm. the military is essentially an armed of the government. General Mm -hmm. Sisi is the commander-in-chief.
0: Let's just come back to, for instance, here in San Francisco. One mile from my house here in San Francisco, there's a Chaldean church. So we, we do have the community of these ancient Middle Eastern Christians here in San Francisco. To give you some idea of the historic links that San Francisco has to those communities, all of the old movie theaters in San Francisco, going back to the uh, 1920s were owned by three Middle Eastern families. I won't mention their names, but they owned all the movie theaters, these three families here in San Francisco. Oh, re- so remarkable. there's a, there Christian? is a, a Christian, Christian. Yes. Fan- oh, okay. All three Christian Middle Eastern families who have been here for a hundred years in San Francisco. And, and just that one example owned all the movie theaters in San Francisco. So, so there is a historic link between some of these, some of those ancient communities of uh, in Syria mm-hmm. and Turkey, with San Francisco, for instance. But that's a that's a little bit of a digression there. But I wanted to come back to the uh, again your book, The Vanishing. It's a fascinating recount of these four countries that have ancient communities. And in in this era of climate change, this era of mass extinction, we talk about mass extinction all the time, whether it's fauna, flora. What you're outlining in your book, The Vanishing, is the prospect of a mass extinction of the original Christian communities that were founded by Jesus Christ, by the apostles, over 2000 years ago. So that's uh, that was one of my takeaways from the book. Janine in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, are there any closing thoughts you have for our, for our listeners because as I said, it's a it's a very eye-opening study as you rightly stated, very few Americans realize that there are these very historic and ancient Christian communities scattered throughout the Middle East. And unfortunately, we, as Americans, and particularly our our foreign policy, doesn't seem to be doing very much to help them either stay in place or to welcome them here to the United States. So any closing thoughts for our listeners on your book, the Vanishing
1: Well, obviously, I hope they read it because not, <laughs> yes, I mean, no, but, but no no, because I think many people i know even people in my family say. The Middle East is so confusing, I don't want to, you know, it's too hard for me to read a book yes. about the Middle East. But I think what I, I've i tried to do in all my books, uh, the one before this was about the war in Syria, is I try to write about the Middle East in a way that people can understand it. And that is, I tell stories mm-hmm. of people. So my way of, of telling the, the macro si- geopolitical situation in the Middle East is to tell it through the voice and the narrative of the people themselves. So they, they are able, it's their story. And I really tried to do or, or oral history here um, for them to explain how their families got to these places, why they wanted to remain there, what challenges they faced. So, you know, my big thing is that I wrote this book because in 100 years' time, when someone goes to the San Francisco library and finds it and says, who are these people? They don't exist anymore. There mm-hmm. are no Christians left in the Middle East. That there is a document of it. What I've always tried to do in all my work is to say, here it is. I've given you the evidence. I've given you the facts. I've told you what is there. You cannot say now this did not happen because it, it is happening they are being eradicated they are being driven out of their ancestral land so i think the first step is to read the vanishing to try to understand the situation and then there are ways that we could help these people thanks very much for having me on i really appreciate it and for digging deep into the vanishing and talking to me about how i wrote it and, and all the complexities of it i i'm very grateful thank you
0: well it's been my pleasure Janine, I have two copies. I have a hardback. Uh I have an electronic version. When Uh I see you in person, either here in San Francisco or in in New York, I will bring my hardback copy for you to personally sign. I would imagine that my listeners would be able to go to their independent bookseller, to go online to Amazon, to, to purchase The Vanishing. Any other thoughts where they might be able to get a copy of the book? And again, it comes both in hardback as well as in the electronic form. Oh, and one of the other points I want to mention about the book: there, the first couple of pages show the maps of the Middle East pre mm-hmm. First World War, post World War One, and then into the twentieth century. And that's we didn't touch on that history, but but that's a that's a fascinating history how it went from relative peace and stability that region under the Ottoman Empire. And then was carved up by the French and the British post World War One into the map that we're familiar with today. And then, of course, we, uh, the United States, we have had also a major impact in the redrawing of that map. I digress as we close. That's here. another
1: podcast. <laughs> That's another <laughs> one. Yes. Yeah, you can find the book either on. I don't like to promote Amazon, but it, Amazon is the easiest, if not Barnes and Noble. Book website, or you can find it on Public Affairs, who are the publishers. You can order it direct, or I even think on my website, which is just Com. There's a link and a way to order it. I really do hope people read it. And thanks again for having me on.
0: Well, there you have it, listeners. Directly from the author, Janine De Giovanni, where you can get the book. I thoroughly recommend it. As I said, I have two copies here. And again, Janine, thank you very much for joining us. And I look forward to having you back here on the podcast sometime soon.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Take care.
0: And for my Bye. listeners please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com and subscribe. It's free and easy to do so. And by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the 232 previous episodes, which are conveniently arranged in 14 categories for ease of access. And rate us on Spotify.com or Apple Podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.